Amen. Thank you, choir and Jonathan. I think everybody probably knows well the name Tony Dungy, a Super Bowl winning coach at the time of the Indianapolis Colts with a, a little known quarterback by the name of Peyton Manning. But uh, there is one passage in the New Testament that when asked about even recently, the one passage that Tony felt like it was okay to coach a winning football team, even though it's not God's purpose to build football teams. Tony said the one passage that gave him the liberty to try to have the best team possible that could even go and win a Super Bowl was 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, if you'd find that. And he acknowledged, of course, this is a passage about building men and building women for the sake of the gospel, not simply about building football teams. But nonetheless, this was a passage he felt like gave him the okay to be the best possible coach in the NFL that he could be. Find verse 24 when you find 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. And I want to talk to you this morning about the normal Christian life. And I've titled that on purpose. Because this ought to describe not just simply super saints, but an attitude each and every one of us have each day in our lives. This ought to be the normal Christian life. So stand with me for the reading of God's word, please. Verses 24 to 27. Paul says there, do you not know that in a race the runners all compete? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Father, I pray that your word would be imprinted on our minds and hearts and lives today. Tonight, the country will be focused on a game with well-trained athletes, well-prepared. And Lord, I pray that that would be a motivation for us to be more prepared in our Christian lives to serve you. Because they do it for a temporal, earthly reward. And for the accolades of men. But we do it for Christ. And for the eternal crown of glory that you will give to your saints on that day. And so God I pray that you would take the principles of this text. And in each life these principles would become more and more of a reality. With each passing day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see just two wonderful truths in our text today. We're going to see the fact that the Christian life is a race. 
And also we'll see that the Christian life is a fight. Now folks, oftentimes we act like the Christian life is a cruise ship experience or a picnic, right? It's just fun and games. It's a picnic. Kind of makes me think of the school teacher. I don't know if they still have show and tell in the early grade schools, but a school teacher said, tomorrow I want you to bring to class to show and tell a symbol of your religious faith. Well, the Jewish boy bought a, brought a copy of the Torah and a Star of David. The Presbyterian boy brought a copy of John Calvin's The Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Baptist boy brought a casserole dish. (laughs) Folks, too often times we think that the Christian life is a picnic. You know, that's going to come when we're in heaven one day. What a glorious day it'll be to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? But the picnic is not for now. Jesus said, work while it is yet day, for the night is coming when no man can work. It's the cross now, the crown later. And we don't need to try to reverse that order. We often fail to understand the New Testament images of a warfare, of races, and of fights. You know, every Christian ought to have some burdens that he or she is praying for. We ought to have some lost souls that we are concerned about. And we ought to have some growth steps that we're taking in our Christian walk. I'm so grateful for those times of rest and refreshment that God gives us. Like he did Elijah. When Elijah was exhausted and Elijah needed to go away to a quiet place for a time of rest. But you know, those seem to be the exceptions rather than the rule in the Word of God. In fact, in the Word of God, we even see God challenging senior saints to run the race and take on new challenges. Now let's see how Paul states that here. First of all, I want you to uh, jot down in your notes the Christian life is like a race. Paul says, do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize run in such a way that you may win it? Now over and over in the Word of God we see that being saved by grace and not by works is is not to be an excuse for laziness. Write down Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says there, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You hear what Paul's saying? You've been saved by grace. And when you think of everything that God has done in your life to bring about your conversion, Paul says, it is your duty now, it is your privilege and responsibility to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. 
Being saved by grace ought to cause us to have such a heart of gratitude that we serve gladly and we serve freely. That's the Christian way. In fact, any other way would be a lack of understanding. You may remember two weeks ago in a message out of 2 Peter 1, Peter was talking there to Christians about their responsibility to be diligent in their growth and their response to God's work of grace in them. In verse 9, Peter said, For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted. He's so nearsighted, in fact, he says that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So again, being saved by grace is no excuse for coasting. You know, there in the, in the New Testament times, there were two great misunderstandings of the Christian life. The first misunderstanding was legalism. And the earlier apostles had to face that in the churches. For instance, with the Judaizers. In legalism, the legalist says, I will be saved by keeping a certain set of laws, by keeping a certain set of codes, and doing all of the right things, all of the right ways, at all of the right times. And if I do all of that just right, I will be godly, I will be spiritual. And sometimes you see that today creep into churches. You know, Joe may think I'm more spiritual than Bob. Because in talking to Bob at work, I, you know, I get up at 5 a.m. to do my Bible reading and prayer time and devotions. And, and Joe says he waits till 10 o'clock in the morning to do so, mid-morning. So I must be more spiritual than Bob because I get up earlier. Or we say, Joe says, you know, I've got more of a Christian haircut than Bob, whatever that means. Of course, some of you know, growing up years ago in hyper-legalistic and fundamentalist churches, I mean, for a man to let his hair touch his ears, I mean, that was a no-no, right? You do something like that, and you must, you must need to repent. You, you need to be more godly. And so legalism is something that the early apostles had to tackle. Because legalism is an enemy of the gospel, the gospel doesn't let loose of standards. In fact, often standards are even higher. But the gospel recognizes that man's standards do not justify you in the sight of God. And they do not keep you justified once you are justified. Now the other great misunderstanding in New Testament times uh, was license. That's the attitude since, hey, I'm saved by grace and not by works. I can now do anything that I want to do. I can live however I want to live. And since grace abounds where sin abounds, I don't, I don't have to have any discipline in my life. License leads to an insistence upon personal liberty with no accountability. It's the attitude that says it doesn't matter who I offend or what I do. I'm free in Christ. And so if you don't like what I'm doing, you just need to get over it and mind your own business. And that's an attitude that's likewise very damaging to the gospel. And that was the problem at Corinth. They were emphasizing themselves. 
Paul's been saying earlier in chapter 9 that he did not use his freedoms or his liberties in Christ that way. He was a free man in Christ. He could enjoy life and the things of life because he was forgiven. But he would not use his Christian freedoms to only care about himself. He wanted to make sure there was nothing in his life that would be a stumbling block to anybody or that would hinder the spread of the gospel. And on top of that, he tried to become all things to all people to win them to Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying, I've determined not to live unto myself. I'm not going to live my life as though I'm an island or an isolation from all other believers. Paul abdicated his personal rights and his personal liberties for the sake of the gospel. You know what it is to abdicate, right? You give up something. I want you to listen to this paragraph from history.com that talks about a king who abdicated his throne. This happened on December the 11th, 1936. And here's what the paragraph says, and I quote, After ruling for less than one year, Edward VIII becomes the first English monarch to voluntarily abdicate the throne. He chose to abdicate after the British government, the public, and the Church of England condemned his decision to marry the American divorcee Wallace Simpson. And so on the evening of December the 11th, he gave a radio address in which he explained, I have found it impossible to carry on the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge the duties of king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman that I love. On December 12th, his younger brother, the Duke of York, was proclaimed King George VI. Guys, I want you to think about the advantage that Edward would have had in an argument with his wife, Wallace Simpson. If they ever got in an argument, he could say, Honey, after all, I gave up the throne of England for you. Abdicate. So the biblical position is, yes, you are free in Christ, but you are to abdicate your personal rights and you are to use your freedoms For righteousness sake. And you're not to do anything that would put a stumbling block in somebody else's way. Now folks, listen to me a moment. I'm sure this is not popular with modern man. And especially at a time in modern history where we love our personal preferences. And we love our personal rights. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to abdicate our personal rights for the sake of the gospel. When is the last time that for the sake of the gospel, you surrendered, you abdicated your rights, your desires, your wants? That's what Paul said he did. Those are the freedoms that you now have, but Paul says surrender those freedoms. For the sake of the gospel. And it takes discipline to see that through. And so with that said. We need to understand. That's how. That's the attitude with which we are to run our race. Now notice what he says. How we are to run our race. First of all. We are to run to win. He says in verse 24. 
We're all in a race. After all, to live is to race. And Paul's audience would have understood this. You see, the Greeks had two great athletic festivals. They had the Olympic Games. Those were every four years. And then in between every two years, they had the Isthmian Games there at Corinth. And in the Isthmian Games at Corinth, they concentrated on wrestling, on running, on boxing, and horse races. Just as today the Super Bowl or the Daytona 500 gets a lot of attention, or maybe the NBA Finals, it was the foot races back then that especially got a lot of attention. They knew every year that at the end of the race, there would only be one person who would win. Now, by the way, that's where the Christian life is different because we can all win. We can all stand before the bema seat of Christ and hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. But nonetheless, Paul says you are to live your Christian life so that if it were to where only one person could win and stand before the Lord and, and, and gain the reward of, of winning the race of the Christian life, Paul says you live your Christian life, you conduct yourself so that you would be the one to win that prize. Think of how different that is from so many attitudes today. So many Christians have the attitude, man, just so I'm saved and got my fire insurance policy, I, I don't care if I've got anything to really show for my Christian life, just so I squeak through heaven's doors. That's all that matters to me. Folks, the, the whole entire atmosphere of the New Testament is against that kind of mentality. Yes, you'll make it to heaven if you know Christ. Even if there's not much that you'll be rewarded for. But you know, it will matter in that day. Paul says in that day there'll be some. He talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There'll be some who stand before the Lord and they will have wasted their lives. And their whole life, even though they're saved yet as by fire, their whole life will, will be like wood, hay, and stubble and it'll be burned up. And there's others that their life will have been lived well for Christ. And they'll receive the war, uh, reward. Their lives, Paul says, is like gold and silver and precious things. Their life has counted. And so Paul says, you run your Christian life so you can be like that. And if there's only one who could win, you run in such a way to be that one. A second thing he says about the Christian life, we're to exercise self-control. If somebody in the games back then was going to win, what would they have to do? They would have to exercise self-control. The contestants in the Isthmian games had to prove that they had submitted to at least 10 months of rigorous training. The last month had to be spent at Corinth under daily supervision of your workouts. And they had to be engaged in eating properly, sleeping properly, and exercising properly. I want you to think about the athlete for a moment. Does their body feel like doing that all of the time? Certainly not. But an athlete doesn't allow his flesh 
to dictate what he does. He might want an ice cream sundae. But he's going to drink his carrot juice and greens instead, right? He may want to stay up late one night and watch the Burmese python that terrorized Miami. But instead of staying up half the night and watching that, he goes on to bed. He may want to sleep in late, but he sets his alarm and he gets up and he puts on his running shoes and he goes out to run, to practice. I think of one man who said at one time, you know, I love to exercise. I love to do sit-ups and pull-ups. Every morning I sit up out of bed and I pull up to the table. Amen. Chad says amen. But you know, the athlete is different. The athlete is disciplined. He disciplines his body. You know, being in the core, I think about a number of years ago, we had a couple of young ladies in our church going to run in the Charlotte Marathon, and they were getting ready to run. It was almost race day. They were needing one final practice to run 26 miles. The weather was too bad outside. So up on that track where some of you are seated this morning, these two young ladies, got a, they ran 416 laps around that track to put in 26 miles. Some of you may remember that. Discipline. Think about what Paul is saying here. An athlete is that discipline to win what? To win a perishable wreath. The wreaths for the games back then would would either be pine wreaths or olive leaves, branches, or even wilted celery leaves. Depending on whether it was... The Olympics or the Isthmian Games and what event you were in. Different kinds of perishable wreaths. And think about winning and and getting a wreath like this. It would perish. It would soon perish. Now granted, they would also gain gain a lot of fame and honor. They were immortalized like some athletes today. They might even have a sculpture made in some certain city and placed in a prominent position. And so to win was a big deal. But even at that, Paul's point is it was a passing pleasure and passing fame. And Paul says, think about that church Even though it's a perishable wreath and it's passing fame, yet the athletes do it anyway. They do it for that temporary praise and just to be able to say they've won. But Paul is saying, church, think about the Christian. We do it to receive an imperishable crown. I think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 3 and following. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and it's reserved in heaven for you. That's what we run for. We are to run to win. We are to exercise discipline. But we're also to run with purpose. 
He says, not without aim. Paul says, I keep my focus. I, I run in such a way as not without aim. I keep my priorities straight. I practice spiritual discipline so that I may be effective. Paul tells Timothy, bodily exercise profits a little. That's our favorite Bible verse when we want to be undisciplined, right? Bodily exercise just profits a little bit. But in all seriousness, physical exercise helps us feel better, keeps us in shape. But the scripture says, while bodily exercise profits a little for now, spiritual discipline profits the soul. And folks, that's for eternity. That's for eternity. And so the, fact, the truth of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, if you and I are going to be effective for the Lord, we've got to be prepared, we've got to be disciplined, we've got to run to win, and we've got to live with purpose. The Christian life is like a race. You're in that race right now, and I'm in that race. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how are you running your race? Are you running to win? Are you running with discipline and with purpose? Are you running to receive the prize? Well, not only is it like a race, but secondly, he goes on to say the Christian life is like a fight. He says in verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. He's, nor do I box as beating the air. And so he's changed the image here from running to boxing. You know, I'm, I'm convinced if the Apostle Paul were living on earth today, he, probably his favorite cable channel would be ESPN. Because he loves sports images so much. So now we've gone from the race to the fight. And notice what we can say about that. We have to fight the right fight. Paul fought the right fight. He said, I box in such a way as not beating the air. Christians can beat the air. We can fight the wrong fight. I've heard of churches fighting over the color of the carpet. That's the wrong fight. That's beating the air. It's a waste of time and effort. Churches can fight over things that adults in churches can fight over things that I think four-year-olds on a preschool playground would be ashamed to fight over. But sometimes adults in churches will fight over those things. Folks, I'm not kidding you. I could tell you some stories um, that pastors know about have happened in certain churches. Fights they've had. We just had Eli Brandebus' funeral this week, sitting at lunch with one of the family members. I don't know how we got on the subject. I mean, we weren't talking about this, but all of a sudden she started talking about a church that they used to go to that literally they, they came to blows almost and split because the adults in the church wanted to paint the front doors of the church different colors. There were different factions who wanted different colors and they almost came to brawl over something like that. That's the wrong fight. We're to fight the right fight. 
What's the right fight? Well, in 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul tells Timothy to fight the, fight the good fight. And then in verse 19, he tells Timothy what he means by that. He describes the good fight as keeping the faith and a clear conscience. We have to fight for right doctrine in Jude 3. Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Fighting for the right doctrine. We've got to fight for the right love. Jesus said in Revelation 2 of the church at Ephesus, they had fallen out of love with him. They didn't love him the way they once did. And so they needed to, they needed to get back in there and strive to renew that first love for Jesus that they once had. We need to fight for the right mission. Jesus gave the church the great commission in Matthew 28. You know, Paul's just said in chapter 9 of, of our text that he became all things to all people to win them more. He was a dedicated man when it came to fighting for God's mission. And we've also got to fight the right enemy. In Ephesians 6, Paul says we don't fight against just simply flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. We've got an enemy, Satan. And so we've got to fight the right fight. We've got to be involved in the right fight. Not beating the air. You know, I love some of the guys in the Word of God, even some of the senior saints like Caleb. Caleb's 80 years old. Only Joshua and Caleb were obedient to the Lord out of all those spies that went in. The others died in the wilderness, but they finally get to the promised land under Joshua. And there's Caleb. It's 40 years later. They, were, they had been obedient. And you remember what Caleb said to Joshua when God told him to go in and fight? Uh, fight the Canaanites in the land and drive them out. Caleb said, Joshua, give me my share of the land. Give me that mountain. He was ready to take on the fight that God had for him. He was ready to fight the right fight. And again, Paul mentions about boxing. We've got to exercise discipline. There's that thought again. He said, I buffet my body and make it my slave. In other words, I'm not going to be governed by the flesh. Now, I think perhaps we need to make some clarification at this point. What Paul is not saying is that as a Christian, we are to practice a harsh, ascetic type denial when it comes to the flesh. You know, if you read in church history about some of the things Martin Luther went through before he came to Christ. Martin Luther became a monk, hoping that by being a monk, God would notice what he was doing and God would save him. And he said, if anybody could have been saved by monkery, I would have been that monk. And he would, in his room, he would lay naked in the freezing cold without any bed coverings, without any clothes. He would, he would, in the heat, he would just roast himself to death. He would go without water, go without food, starve himself, hoping that if God could see his harsh treatment of the flesh, 
God would save him because he'd say, there's a man that really loves me. And, and when Martin Luther wised up to that, he came to faith in, in Christ, he would have been against the harsh treatment of the flesh. And so that's not what Paul is saying here, that we've got to treat the flesh harshly. But at the same time, what he is saying is we're not to be governed by fleshly desires. Yes, God gives us all good things to enjoy. So enjoy food, enjoy recreation, enjoy rest, enjoy your work, enjoy the things of the earth. Take pleasure in these things. Just don't be governed by them. Don't be dictated in your life by the things of the flesh and the things of this world. God gives us things to provide for us. But our life is not in these things. And so Paul said, as a boxer, I, I, I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that I am living for eternal things. And then he pointed out we have to aim to receive the right verdict. So that after proclaiming to others, I should not be disqualified. Folks, if we don't fight the right fight and we don't exercise discipline, you know what can, you know what can happen? We can be useless. For God's kingdom. I think about the parable Jesus told of the talents. One received five, one two, one only received one. And he went out and dug a hole in the ground and he hid that one. And when Jesus came back, he said, take that servant and cast him out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can lose our testimony. So many start well and then they allow fleshly appetites to, to ruin their testimony. If somebody was genuinely saved, are they still saved? Of course they're still saved if they were saved to begin with. But they've lost their testimony. They've lost their reward. And that's precisely what Paul means in verse 27 when he uses the word disqualified. It, some translations may say a castaway. I don't want to become a castaway. You see, at the Greek games, a herald would ascend to the platform and announce the contestants at the end. The contestants and then the winner, of course. But he would also announce the castaways. Those who did something in the games and they disqualified themselves. They did not lose their citizenship in the city. But they had lost the ability to be able to win the prize. If there's something in your life that should not be there... It will ruin your testimony if it stays there. In the eyes of the world, you will be disqualified. The question is, do you care enough about God's honor and praise and glory to deal with it? Paul certainly cared enough. He didn't want to have anything in his life that when he stood there at the Bema Seat of Christ, he would be shown to have been a castaway, disqualified. So again, folks, think of this. You're not only in a race, but you're also in a fight. The Christian life is a fight. 
But not a fight against trivial things about personal preferences. It's not a fight with one another. But it's a fight against the devil, the flesh, and the world. And we've got a box with purpose. Not beating the air. And we've got to examine our lives so there'll be nothing in the end that'll show that we're disqualified from winning the prize. As we close, I I want to invite you first and foremost to get in the race, to get in the fight if you're not in the race or in the fight. I'm talking about conversion. And as we looked at this past Wednesday night, conversion is a work of God. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does as He convicts you and draws you to Christ. He regenerates you. But you've got to respond. And so the Bible says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Am I talking to somebody this morning that you know in your heart of hearts you need to come to Christ. You need to start the journey. You need to get in the race. You need to get in the fight. I'd love to pray with you down front. The Kevin's up in the sanctuary with the overflow group. They'd love to pray with you up there. If you need Christ, talk to us. Maybe you're in the race, maybe you're in the fight, but something happened and and now you're half-hearted. Maybe trials and tribulations have discouraged you. Maybe some sin has blinded you in your life. Maybe just the day-in and day-out struggles of life have cooled you off. You need to get back in the race and get back in the fight. Maybe your prayer this morning needs to be, God, stir my heart. Stir my heart the way I used to live for you, the way I used to serve you, the way I used to love you and your people. God, do that in me again. Stir my heart again. Tonight, as you're watching the Super Bowl, and you see those athletes down there. And again, you think of all the time, the training, the discipline, the exercise that they put into what they're doing. There'll be a team at the end that they'll raise that Super Bowl trophy. And all the world this week will be talking about that. But you know what? Five years from now, if somebody asks, who, who won the Super Bowl February of 2021? Chances are, unless you're into all kinds of sports things, you're probably not even going to remember And yet they've done all this to reach this game tonight. And tonight as you watch that game, I I hope and pray God will impress upon your mind that you're in a Christian race and a Christian fight. And it's my prayer for four quarters tonight. God won't leave you alone about this message. When it comes to living a life of dedication, discipline, purpose, and running to win. What needs to take place in your life so you'll stand before the Lord one day at the Bema seat of Christ and you'll get that reward and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we thank you for these sports analogies in Scripture because we, re- we relate to them so much. We love athletics. We love sports. We love competition. 
would help us to understand what Paul's saying, though. We're in a race, we're in a fight that is far more important. There's no comparison, none. And yet, Lord, honestly, so oftentimes we treat the Christian race and the Christian fight so haphazardly. We neglect training. We don't give it our all. We're half-hearted. We neglect our prayer life. We neglect our Bible study. We neglect our worship. We neglect using our spiritual gift for the sake of the body of Christ. And we get lazy in our Christian lives. Father, help us all to get back in the race and in the fight. And to do so, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we live to His praise and glory, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please?